Welcome back once again to Everyday Holiness, a faith indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service. And we welcome you to our eighth season and 50th episode of the podcast. So if you're a first-time listener, there's plenty of great and inspiring stories for you to go back and catch up with. And for those of you who are longtime listeners and loyal to the podcast, we're really excited to share another season of these inspiring stories of people seeking after holiness. I'm honored to be joined this week by Meg Hunter-Kilmer. Meg is a 2004 undergrad from Notre Dame and received her Master of Theological Studies, her MTS degree in 2006, and she is now an author, itinerant missionary, and storyteller. So, Meg, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. 50th, that feels pretty important. I know. Very Uh, fancy. uh, What an honor, right? (laughs) (laughs) The working of the Holy Spirit here. So, I, I can't believe, honestly, that we are 50 episodes into this thing. But it's been super inspiring for me to hear so many stories, so glad to be joined by you today. We'll start out, what were some important aspects of your childhood that you think really shaped you into the person you are today? Oh, man, we're going we're deep going, real we, fast. We go back, okay. way back, right away. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like, for me, my childhood was a lot of sort of figuring out who I was supposed to be in the world. I didn't have a family that had like a strong sense of this is how you behave and this is how you operate and this is how people interact with each other. So I think there was a lot of grasping Mm -hmm. when I was a child and just trying to figure out like what's funny and what crosses the line and how are you supposed to communicate and what's needy and what's too standoffish. So I, I feel like looking back at my childhood, it's just a lot of desperation. Mm, Okay. Um, And I, my family was Catholic. We went to Mass on Sundays. I went to my first confession. I lied in my first confession, and then I never went back. So, I mean, I, I did eventually. That's eventually, not how that story yeah. ends. But it, there was definitely a sense of this is not who I am, right? Like, I knew I was an intellectual. I had this sneaking suspicion you had to be a little bit stupid to be a Christian, even at 9, 10 years old. So I had sort of turned my back on the faith. And I, again, when you're when your life is sort of driven by this seeking and this grasping at every level and you have divorced yourself from any possibility for answers, there really is a feeling of unrootedness and a feeling just of this, I don't know, this profound angst. Mm. So that even as a fourth grader, a fifth grader, there was a sense that life has no meaning and nobody will ever be happy. Okay. <laughs> uh, so there you go. I mean, you asked about my childhood. That's so right. we're going to have a little therapy session <laughs> here. Right. Well, and, and of course, people often do go through that crisis of faith, that searching, that desperation, but usually probably not that early in life. I have always been very precocious. Okay, what yeah. can I say? <laughs> so where did you grow up? What area of the country? What was I grew up outside D.C. Okay. Okay. And then as you were working through some of those things, how did your parents and family react to some of this restlessness and and searching that you were going through? Well, I'm a people pleaser, so I don't think anybody had any idea what was going on. Because, you know, one thing I knew is that you couldn't be too much, right? Because I am by nature a lot. And I had figured out early on that if you're too emotional, if you're too needy, if you're too intense, that was going to be off-putting to people. So I was like, well, this is something that I have to figure out on my own. And there wasn't anybody that I felt would understand me. There wasn't anybody that I felt had a grasp on these things. You know, the adults in my life who knew Jesus, they weren't people who uh, felt things as intensely as I did. And so I was I, I just knew there was sort of a disconnect there. And it was really just something where I was like, well, 
you just have to be privately miserable for your whole life. Like that's okay. that's what the human experience wow. is. And was sort of alternately agnostic, atheist, sometimes was very pleased with being Catholic because it was the club that I had chosen. Mm-hmm. Um, never was there any sense of a relationship with Jesus. And then I got dragged on a confirmation retreat when I was 13 years old. And I went kicking and screaming yeah. and I rolled my eyes the entire weekend. I just thought the whole thing was a massive waste of time. And then one by one, every girl in my small group went to confession. And I was like, well, if I don't go to confession, no one will be my friend. And again, my whole driving force was figuring out how to be a person who fit right in the world, who people liked. And it seemed to me in that moment, the only way to come out of this weekend with friends is to go into this confessional right now. So I was like, all right, fine. So I went into the confession out of imaginary peer pressure. And God in his mercy was like, baby girl, good enough, <laughs> right? Like normally we're looking for contrition of some sort, right. but but I will take it. And it was just this profound experience of sacramental grace. Wow. Just, I mean, I was, I was wrecked. I was sobbing. I was broken. I was crying so hard I couldn't breathe. The priest, God love him, kept having to change the subject so I could calm down enough to breathe. And, you know, 13 years old with all of the attendant feelings. Right. Not, not what he was probably expecting. Right. Exactly. <laughs> He's like, I'm used to criers in the confessional, but this is there's a lot of snot in this yeah. one. I mean, it was, it was not pleasant. It was just I met Jesus. Yeah. You know, and I knew in that moment. That in all of the time that I had been lost and searching, he had been there with me. And in all of the time that I had been running from him because I was so angry that my life didn't make sense, so angry that I wasn't the one in charge of everything, he had loved me through all of it. And mm. it was just being confronted with my sinfulness in as much as I could even understand that sure. with my level of yeah. catechesis and recognizing that the whole point of it was not guilt and shame. The whole point of it was God saying, I'm still here Mm. and I still want you. And I was kind of like, okay, well, if this is it, then let's go. Okay. So that was a huge turning point. Huge. Again, (laughs) some people have that later in life, but here you are with angst in fourth and fifth grade and then having this tremendous experience of faith and this uh, really encounter with God in in a tremendous way at 13. How did that change then your teen years in terms of reorienting you towards Christ and and kind of affecting your life. It was night and day. And I was still a 13-year-old girl and already the person that I still am. And so there was a lot of emotional instability. There was a lot of unnecessary misery. I remember my friend asking me what I was going to have for dinner, and I stormed weeping out of the room. You know, like mm-hmm. there was like still a lot going yeah, on. Yeah. But there was a foundation that I stood on. There was a conviction that I was loved and a rootedness in the delight of the Father that made everything else bearable. And I think for a long time, the way that I would phrase it, I was like, you know, like it it brought me joy that I never had before. And I I sort of felt like then I had to always be sort of happy. And there there was a threat to my faith if I was miserable. But I realized that it wasn't it wasn't that I was all the time happy, of course, right? That's not that's not what faith is. It was that in my misery, I knew I was not alone. Mm. I knew I was not unloved, you know? And like, you still have to be a sophomore in high school, even if you know Jesus, yeah, right? And yeah. you still have to not get asked to the dance and you still have to not get a job you applied for. And you still have to have parents, right? All of these things are true, yeah. even when you, your life has been transformed by the love of Jesus. And, uh, and it was a lot of years of learning how not to run away from that from the suffering out of either a desire to avoid it or a sense that there was no place for suffering in the Christian mm-hmm. life, you know, mm-hmm. which is obviously not a Catholic, sure. Catholic ideal. Sure. But 
coming to a place where I could say, if I follow a crucified God, there is space for me to be broken and there is space for me to weep. And there, that space is right at the foot of the cross, right next to Our Lady of Sorrows mm-hmm. who stands there weeping with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think for all of us, if we live long enough, we encounter you know, some of the hardest suffering and difficulties of life. And the question is not if that will happen, it's will we have, you know, will we trust that God is there with us in that? And that's a lesson, unfortunately, we all have to all have to learn at some point. But I think, and then there's, of course, the that watershed moment of do we abandon our faith or are we tremendously grateful for it that God can be there with us in, in that depths, in those, those darkest nights? So you, you talked about your parents a bit and, and their knowledge of this or lack thereof. Were they mentors to you in faith later on, or were there other people who really drew you in deeper as you kind of grew into that adolescent faith? You know, I think there's probably something in me that can't handle being led very well. <laughs> I uh, I don't respond super well to authority figures, which is a funny thing to say when you're Catholic and right. you're like your whole life is about obeying authority <laughs> figures. But I think for me, most of it needed to be unmediated. And I had really wonderful priests and really wonderful youth ministers who provided great opportunities Mm. for me to come to know Jesus. And so it wasn't so much, this is a mentor who I'm going to sit and we're going to have these long conversations. I was asking really intense questions. I was was going (laughs) real hard and I was 13 years old. And these are like the random volunteers at youth ministry who just came because they're looking for a Catholic boyfriend, (laughs) you know, like, and they're wonderful, wonderful people, but they hadn't necessarily signed up for somebody to sit down with them and talk about grace and the problem of free will, you know, like all of these issues. And uh, and so I think that I it's just sort of not in my nature to wrestle with those things with individuals, okay. but they had uh, made these spaces for me. There was an expectation of a real profound pursuit of holiness in my youth group. Mm-hmm. We had several youth groups, but one of them was a men's youth group and a women's youth group. And when you became a full member, you committed to daily mass. Hmm. And so when I was 16 years old, I stood up in front of God, my family, and my community and made promises and got a special blessing. They put a special cross on me. And and then the expectation was that I was going to go to daily mass. I think they probably meant for every day of high school. And yeah. I sort of meant for every day for the rest of my life yeah. because, you know, I, I go hard. That was the environment that I was coming of age yeah. as a Catholic in was this – desire to bring people to the sacraments and we would have adoration, which in the late 90s was unusual. And I was involved Mm -hmm. in Fellowship of Christian Athletes. So I was reading scripture with my Protestant friends and I was learning to pray extemporaneously with my Protestant friends. And there were just all of these different environments, largely, largely of peers, you know, with good leadership. But I think the way that the Lord works in me. You know, he he works through all of our brokenness. He works through my stubbornness. And so I became Catholic and I was like, I will win church, right? And I he works through my pride. And so he put me in situations where he was like, if you are going to be a leader who's bringing people to me, you have to figure this out. You have to read the whole catechism and you have to read the whole Bible and you have to be going to mass every day and you have to be writing in a prayer journal or whatever my spirituality was yeah, at the time. And yeah. so it was very much the Lord saying, like, I know your heart. And, like, this part is a little bit warped right now, but uh-huh. I can work with this. Okay. I can work in your stubbornness. I can work in your pride. And I can keep pulling you into these experiences of grace, into the sacraments, into Scripture, into the teaching of the church. And I was insufferable, just <laughs> in many ways, I'm sure, a fairly unpleasant person to be around because I knew everything. And I was going to just 
punch people in the face with the Bible until they knew Jesus too. But God was working in that and mellowing my heart and teaching me um, to speak with his tenderness and with his gentleness. Yeah, the word that is coming to mind is intense or intensity. <laughs> like uh-huh. it was, it, you know, uh, you you were you were going all in in that, and sometimes you can sustain that for a while, but then you can get weary of that, or or people get weary of that and don't respond to that mm-hmm. as well. And so it's like, okay, how? And, and you think about Jesus in the scriptures, and sometimes he was very direct and very intense, and people needed a wake up call, and then other times, you know, like a gentle shepherd. So it's like. Ha- how do you figure that out in terms of catechizing and sharing your faith in terms of what people are ready to receive? Yeah, and I think so much of it, especially when when you're young and when you're a convert and when you're both at once, mm-hmm. it's a lot of extricating the truth and goodness and beauty of the faith from your own pride at having figured it out. Because I think some of what I was saying was, look, Jesus is amazing, and I want you to know him too. And some of what I was saying was, I figured out that Jesus is amazing, and you should know that so you will understand how wonderful I am. And I think the Lord, I mean, I'm I'm sure I'm still there in a lot of ways, but preaching the name of Jesus has cost me quite a lot. And so I think it's less tied up in what it can accomplish for me than it was when I was young and and very pleased with the persecution as opposed to recognizing that sometimes you're not being persecuted. Sometimes people are responding to the fact that you're being a jerk. Okay. Like you can be right and also a jerk at the same time. Mm, like that's yeah, possible. Yeah. Yeah. That's Especially uh, on Twitter. Right. <laughs> Did we misinterpret this? Yeah, exactly. So you were probably then encountering the different vocations in the church and, and moments of discernment. What was that like for you as a young person? Were you thinking about God might be calling me to some sort of vocation or life? When did that discussion kind of enter your prayer and your process with God? Uh, vocational discernment in terms of consecrated life, not until I was at Notre Dame. Uh, but I found out that missionaries were a thing okay. when I was in high school, and I was like, stop. That's amazing. It could be my job to tell people about Jesus. And then I found out religion teacher was a job. And I was like, I can be paid to force people to listen to me talk about Jesus. Like, absolutely <laughs> sign me up. Why is that even a yeah, question? Okay. Um, so a sense of a missionary vocation was really very early after after my conversion, I would say probably in the first year or so. Because to me, the contrast between my life before Jesus and my life knowing Jesus was so extreme. Mm-hmm. There was just everything about my life was the same, but there was hope. Hmm. Everything about my life was the same, but but there was a conviction that I was loved. And even when being a teenage girl and being a human being and being emotionally volatile compounded on each other. And I was convinced again that I was just, uh, as St. John Paul II said, the sum of our weaknesses and failures. I could not shake the certain truth that I was wildly and ceaselessly loved by Mm. a God who had died to save me. Yeah, And that my parents loved me quite a lot. My dad was very demonstrative in the way that he loved us. And so that was def- my experience of the father's love was definitely rooted in the familiarity mm-hmm. that it had to my father's love, but my my parents' love was never enough. And the the fleeting and inadequate love of my friends only ever left me feeling like there was something missing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and knowing Jesus even though it wasn't always 
butterflies in my stomach. There was just a grounding there. And I knew if there was an opportunity to bring that to people, that was what I had to do. Okay. Okay. It's a wonderful gift and grace to have that certainty of God's love so young. And obviously talk about hanging on to that, you know, through the slings and arrows of life as they can be. When you were thinking about college, where did Notre Dame factor into that? What led to that decision? So I knew I needed a theology degree if I was going to be a religion teacher. And I I don't know. I, there are probably parts of the D.C. area where Notre Dame is a thing. Certainly, if you're going to Catholic school, people yeah, are into Notre Dame. A, but there's like, a, There's an, a, a Notre Dame club right, in exactly. D.C. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but not in my community. Not. I went to a public high school. It was a science and tech high school. And all I knew was like, well, Notre Dame's a decent school and they have theology. So I... Uh, I visited Boston College. I visited Holy Cross in Massachusetts. I visited Franciscan University, and all of them just felt deeply wrong. And Notre Dame, I showed up with no understanding of the lore of Notre Dame. I mean, even after I was I was getting ready to go to Notre Dame, and my new pastor was like, oh, do you know the fight song? And I was like, no, what? Like, didn't even know the fight <laughs> right, song was right, a thing. Okay. Hadn't heard of Rudy. Like, yeah. nothing. Yeah, yeah. And my mom and I pulled onto campus and we're parked in some parking lot next to a dumpster. Can't even see the dome. It's 35 degrees outside and sleeting. And I get out of the parking lot standing next to the dumpster and I just felt like choirs of angels singing. Hmm. And I was like, this is it. I'm home. I mean, it was just the most intense, clear moment of God's direction. And I was kind of, I'm like, we can get back in the car and go. Like, this is, this is where I'm going to go to college. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm going to go to Notre Dame. And, uh, you know, I, I told people at my, funny, fancy science and tech high school. And they would be like, oh, well, they have a football team, so that'll be fun. Like, I had no idea that Notre Dame was a good school until, yeah. like, October of my freshman year. I'm just, like, <laughs> like trucking along, doing all the Notre Dame things, learning that we have a football team and a mascot and all of this <laughs> stuff. And so it, it's just funny because Notre Dame, I think, is so much about lore for so many people who right. are coming here. And for me, I was just like, well, I have to go to a Catholic school. So okay. they've got Mary on the top of that building. I guess I might as well go there. Yeah, yeah. So as you began to understand Notre Dame and get acclimated to it, what were some important moments here that helped deepen your faith and deepen your sense of self and identity? I think a lot of what was important for me at Notre Dame was how Notre Dame is just this microcosm of global Catholicism. And I, you know, I had been captain of Team Catholic and at my high school sure. and in my youth group. And I was the one who was sort of like the the bulwark of all things that were Catholic. And so it was so easy for me to think, well, the way that I am Catholic is the way to be Catholic, okay. right? And at the time that involved like guitars and clapping and, you know, whatever, like certain liturgical preferences and certain books and certain styles of prayer and whatnot. And I am just the kind of person who wants to condemn everybody who is not exactly like me in every possible <laughs> way. And not even in like moral issues, but just like in the way that you walk in the airport. Okay, like, okay. Why would a person walk down the middle? Like obviously. Yeah, so yeah. coming to Notre Dame was really good for me because you meet these people who just don't fit in the boxes mm -hmm. that you want to put them in. And you meet people who uh, whose spirituality is totally different from yours, who are also manifestly holy. Mm. And, and to see the people who were into praying the rosary in Latin and also barefoot playing Frisbee on the quad in their Pax Christi shirts, you know, and, mm -hmm. and to see that like people don't, they don't fit neatly into boxes to be disposed of, right? And just encountering 
all of these different styles of prayer, all of these different spiritualities, and obviously intellectually, theologically, the work in the classroom. But I think for me, primarily what was essential is just the broadening of my understanding of what it means to be Catholic Mm -hmm. from this very insular perspective I had that was rooted not even in my actual spirituality, but in the spirituality that I had absorbed at random because of the community that I was part of when I was 15. And so recognizing these different types of spirituality and and modes of service and things that I thought were black and white that were much grayer according to the church's official teaching, right? Mm-hmm. Understanding mm-hmm. that there are, there are certain passions for justice that that can be such a fruitful way of entering into the heart of Jesus that are dismissed by certain types in the church, right? Mm-hmm. And, and passion for liturgy that can be dismissed by other types in the church yeah. and, and passion for all kinds of different things that fall under the umbrella of, of universal, of Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we just only ever want these divisions. And being here was so healthy for me in broadening my understanding of what it could look like to be a faithful Catholic without having to be identical, right? Mm-hmm. So that, mm-hmm. that love of diversity of, of expression of faith, diversity yeah. of service was just so important for me in becoming less insufferable. <laughs> That's good. It reminds me of like going to St. Peter's Square for a mass and you just get this sense of like this global church mm-hmm. and, and the different charisms and the beautiful diversity, the, the tapestry that really is the universal church. And, and we are blessed here at Notre Dame to, to have a lot of that. Was that a hard lesson for you to learn? Did you feel really stretched and challenged by that? Or once you got into that, was it real a real, you know, exciting discovery for you? I think it was a little bit of both, because I think there were definitely certain attributes of various flavors of Catholicism that I was very wary of. And so I it took a, a minute for me to say, oh, well, maybe that is okay. And there were others where I was like, oh my goodness, it never occurred to me mm-hmm. what that could look like. Yeah, I, I would say that it wasn't something that I really could have put my finger on until years later when I looked back and was like, well, this is this is the huge difference in me before and after. Okay. Is that I, I'm so much more able to admire people I don't identify with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than I was before. Yeah. Well, and it's a sense, I, I think, I hope listeners get, you know, listening to this podcast is there's a lot of walks of life and paths towards holiness that certainly there's the common thread, but they can look very, very different and can look different at different times of life. So I think that's a great thing that you were able to get a sense of that while you were here at Notre Dame in your study of theology. Can you tell us some about that as you, again, broaden your intellectual side and understanding of what the church teaches and you know how you, what you came with and encountering some of the theology faculty here? Intellectually, my interest really was in preparing to teach young people because I wanted to be a high school teacher. Um, And so we would, you know, you'd go to a class where we're going to spend two full class periods on one question in the Summa. And I was like, this is not what I need to be doing. (laughs) I was I was not interested in the mile deep perspective, which is tough when you're in the academy, right? right? Because that really is the point of doing theology as opposed to religious studies or catechesis. I wanted to learn the answer for every question that I would ever be asked. And I wanted to have neat, pat answers. And in some ways, studying theology is helpful in that. And when I did my MTS, I was doing systematics. Um, And there's some degree to which systematic theology can really help you come up with a system of answers. But there were other courses where I was just like, okay, well, this is 
this is the thing that I'm taking because you have to take it, but not because it's actually going to be fruitful. I think I had – my focus was – far too much on being prepared to work and far less on delighting in knowledge. And I really think in many ways my education was wasted because I just wanted to win, mm. right? I wasn't coming to Notre Dame because I had questions okay. that I wanted to answer. I was coming to Notre Dame because I was going to graduate summa cum laude. Yeah. I was going to <laughs> get the best GPA. I was going to impress all of the professors. Everyone was going to know I was amazing. And then I was going to come out and have all of the answers. And nobody would ever ask a question that I couldn't handle. Hmm. And I, I mean, in many ways, that's what I accomplished. But I didn't give myself the space to delight or to wonder or to wrestle or to struggle. I think it would have been really fruitful to me to have an advisor sit down with me at the beginning or, you know, with everybody at the beginning and say, the point of being here is not to check all of the boxes and impress everybody. Like, mm -hmm. that's what you've been doing up to this point in your life, but you're here. Yeah. Like, you got here. Right. And if you graduate from Notre Dame, you can go to whatever comes next, right? Sure. Like, you don't have to have a 4.0 at Notre Dame to go to whatever comes next. You can take classes that don't fit in your degree program. I certainly spent a lot of time having the amazing conversations and and wrestling with the ideas with friends, uh, with, with peers, again, not sure. with authority figures. Uh, but I didn't take my academic work as an invitation to wonder and awe and and confusion and and wrestling with anything. It was just, now I'm going to check these boxes and I'm going to get this done so I can go to the next thing. And I think that's a real issue that we have in education right now. Oh, for now. sure. That's a hard lesson to learn. And I actually, I teach this Moreau first year experience course. So I have, you know, 19 incoming students or so. And we often talk about that, that so much of their life up to this point has been defined by accomplishment to be able to be admitted to a place like Notre Dame with its ever-increasing difficulty and admission standards. But now that they're here, how can they be intentional with the time that they have to grow holistically, not only intellectually, but emotionally and spiritually and relationally, all those things. And only God knows how successful that is for each individual person. But I think it's a really hard rut to, to get out of if you've been just driving so hard as it sounds like you were up to that point in your life. So I don't think you're alone in that, but something that, that, that is, is a good reflection point for anybody who's in that phase of life. I always tell people, if I had it to do over again and I were a different person, I would do PLS. But I know even as I am having to do it over again, I still wouldn't do the reading for PLS. Right. <laughs> I still would I still would be having conversations until four o'clock in the morning in La Fun, you know, yeah. which there was so much fruit that was born by the relationships. And I'm still really good friends with so many people that yeah. I knew at Notre Dame and godmother to their children and staying at their houses all over the country, all over the world. So I I certainly don't I don't regret that. And I don't know that I could have done that and also done the wrestling, but I certainly could have taken some 8 a.m. classes with professors who were brilliant instead of being like, it's just not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sleep in every day. Yeah. Well, some of that hindsight, uh, yeah. 2020, but there were, sounds like moments of grace that were happening in those relationships all along. You did mention that you thought about religious life when you came to Notre Dame. Can you give us some sense of that discernment and and, and what that was like? Yeah, it was mostly to try and end an awkward breakup conversation. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's that's how it started. I was trying to break up with somebody, and he wasn't taking it, and which 
why is that a thing, right? If someone breaks up with you, that's just the end of the relationship. But anyway, (laughs) God love him. He was like, is this because you're discerning religious life? And I was like, well, he can't object if I say yes. So I was like, yes, it is. And I told my Buddhist friend who doesn't go to Notre Dame. And she was like, you broke up with a boy because you're going to be a nun? And I was like, I mean, kind of. And she was like, are you going to be a nun? I was like, I don't think so. And she's like, is this normal for you? And I was like, honestly, yes, it's very normal in in Catholic young adult circles. But then I felt like, you know, to do it justice, I ought to really actually discern. And I discerned the way I did most things, you know, sort of like a steamroller. Um, And I, it was very much, I I always say discerning like a thug, right? Like grabbing, grabbing Jesus by the collar of his shirt and dragging him into an alley and saying, telling me my vocation right now. And that's just not what discernment is, right? It was always it was about control and it was about my having a plan. And, you know, I was going to do whatever God wanted. I just needed to sign off on it. Mm-hmm. He was like, that's not how this works. Mm. And I remember being in Morrissey Chapel and praying and just being like, Lord, I will do whatever you want. Like, I just let me know your will. Yep. And getting this profound sense of the Lord saying, it's not about knowing my will. It's about doing my will and realizing how much control he was asking me to let go of. Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't God saying, this is what I want for you and me saying, okay, then I will do it. It was God saying, I need you to close your eyes and start walking. And so, you know, I had sort of this intense and dramatic uh, vocational discernment period my freshman year. And then got a sense that the Lord was saying, I just need you to be where you are right now. I need Mm. you to be who you are right now. You are spending so much energy stressing out about a possible future vocation, and you're ignoring the good things that are in front of you right now. And so it was really another conversion, right, of the Lord saying, your prayer life needs to be less about you, and Mm. it needs to be more about a love affair. And I think that's, that's a real issue that we see in discernment in young people in the church right now. I spend a lot of time talking to young people about this, and I, I always say stop seeking God's will and start seeking God. Because if mm. you run after God, you will find yourself in his will. But so often we go into a chapel and obsess over ourselves and call it prayer. Yeah. And then we're, we're paralyzed by the inability to make a decision because we don't feel like we have enough information. We don't feel that we've been given a clear enough direction. But if, you, if you're spending serious time in silence every day trying to love the Lord, you can trust that you're going to find yourself in his will. Mm. That's such a great insight because I mean, having gone through my own vocational discernment and talking with students in spiritual direction from time to time through campus ministry, I think there's a sense of uh, a fear sometimes of I don't want to get it wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to miss God's will. And so it just gets, and then you've been on this timeline and you're on time with, you went to high school and you got through high school and went to college on time. You're going to graduate on time. And you're like, oh, I got to, I got to figure this out in time for the next deadline. But that's not always how God's answers come. And sometimes that's distracting us from, you know, God knocking on the door of our hearts trying to tell us exactly. <laughs> something else Yeah, I, I always tell people we treat God like he's this sadistic leprechaun hmm. who's sending us on a scavenger hunt and hiding around the edge <laughs> of a building and cackling when we miss the signs. Right. But he is a good father hmm. who delights in us and is calling us to a life of joy. And that And so to look to the Lord instead and say, I just want to learn to love you and I want to trust that that you're going to lead me. And I so I currently, I'm an itinerant missionary. I've been living out of a car for 10 and a half years. And I always tell people, I am so sure I'm going to go to my judgment. And the Lord is going to say, baby girl, you thought I wanted you to be a what now? Like, <laughs> you know, 
people don't do that. That's not a thing, right? right. And, yeah. and in that moment, I'm going to feel so devastated that I got it wrong. And he's going to say, oh, but good job. Like, it was weird, but you tried really <laughs> hard. You know, I just think God is so pleased with our earnest efforts to please him. And when we're spending real time in silent prayer every day, I, I really think he's either going to form our hearts to desire what he desires, he's going to step in and stop us before he we do something stupid, or he's going to work with the dumb things we do, right? God doesn't cut his losses on us because we pick the wrong vocation or we pick the wrong major or we drive the wrong way to work. He is always at work, even when we do the dumbest things imaginable, yeah, right? The stories of the saints, you look at them and you're like, dang, like that was for sure the wrong move, but also they never would have become the person who changed the world yeah. if they hadn't made that mistake. Yeah. It's so interesting. Like God interacting with our free will and grace still abounding in yeah. that. It's, it's amazing to see it. And of course, our time-bound perspective and God's eternal perspective, it's hard for us to understand in the moment, but right. that God's always, always working there. So how did you get from, I'm going to be a teacher to... I'm going to live in a car. I'm going to live in a car and be yeah. a missionary. With a whole lot of false starts is not the right word. A whole lot of what felt like false starts. I was a teacher for three years. Then I actually entered a convent briefly. Okay. It was clear pretty rapidly that God was calling me out of there. And there was, again, that sense of I made a mistake, right? I made the wrong choice. And it took a long time of the Lord working on my heart for me to recognize that he can call you someplace that he doesn't call you to stay, mm. right? He can mm. call you to a relationship that isn't going to end in marriage. He can call you to med school and not to be a doctor. He can call you to the convent and not call you to make vows. And there was so much that I learned while I was there. First and foremost, the need for silent prayer, because you can be so Catholic and never spend consistent time in silent prayer. Mm -hmm. You can pray your rosaries and you can pray the office and you can read the Bible and you can do your devotionals and you can go to mass, all of the things, all of these checkboxes that Catholics love so much and never spend time in silent prayer except when you have something to say. And it's great to talk to God when you have something to say, but relationships are built in the times when you have nothing to say. Relationships are built in the awkwardness and in the discomfort and the showing up and trying to be still so that you can listen. And it wasn't until I was in the convent that somebody was like, no, you have to just sit and talk to God every day for uncomfortable amounts of time, even when you are appallingly distracted and exhausted and don't want to be there. And I was like, okay, again, I'm going to win church, right? So if I'm going to leave the yeah, convent, yeah, yeah. I'm still going to do this. And I think it's one of the most important things that's ever happened to me is mm. that realization that holiness comes in making that space for God to speak. And, and again, that's where the peace, I think, in discernment is, is that at the end of the day, I gave God space to speak. And if I'm not hearing what he's saying. That's really not entirely on me, right? Like I'm I'm showing up, I'm sitting in front of the tabernacle, I'm caffeinated before I get there, you know? <laughs> like I've got I know what I need to do in order to be present. And I'm not good at prayer, right? But because you can't be good at prayer, because you can't be bad at prayer, because it's not about you. All you can do is show up. And the peace that comes of knowing, like, I made space for God to speak. And if I couldn't hear him, like he's really not gonna fault me for that. And I think that's where that's where that peace and moving in discernment comes and where where the Lord has worked so much in my itinerant life. So I left the convent. I went back to teaching for a little while. And then it was clear that God was calling me out of the classroom. And I was like, I have two degrees in theology, right? Mm -hmm. That and a winning personality will get you a second interview at McDonald's. This right. is not a lucrative degree, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> and I, I really had no idea 
where the Lord was calling me. And a priest friend of mine was like, well, you're you're good at public speaking, been wanting to do more of that. I was like, that's cute, Father. You can't just quit life and be a public speaker. That's not, mm-hmm. it's not a career path. And I took it to prayer. And I just felt like the Lord was saying, tell me why not. And I, with my two degrees from Notre Dame and my focus on impressing everybody my entire life, couldn't come up with a reason not to be homeless and unemployed. Hmm. And I was like, I'm going to go to my tenure reunion from my high school where a dozen of my classmates literally work for NASA. And I'm going to tell them I'm living out of a car. And that, it felt right. And that's objectively not the person that I am, right? And if you find yourself really drawn to something that you know is contrary to your natural inclinations, you just got to pay attention to that, Mm -hmm. right? And so I was like, I shouldn't. I shouldn't be at peace with this, but I am. And again, I'm spending this time in prayer every day, not necessarily wrestling with this question, just being with the Lord. And I'm going to trust that if he's giving me peace about something that is absolutely the opposite of anything that I would ever want to do, it's got to be him. So I thought it was going to be for two months. It's been... 10 years and uh, 50 states, 25 countries driven, I don't know, 330,000 miles at this point. Yeah. It's keeping me busy. Yeah. Well, and you've often said you wanted to win. Yeah. And this seems so much not like winning in in a worldly sense, but it's a, it's the surrender. I mean, it's, it was that you, you were surrendering your will to God's will to what you couldn't come up with this reason. And, that's a, I think that's a really important aspect of the Christian life is to, is to surrender mm-hmm. at some point, mm-hmm. even when things don't make sense or, or the world may be looking you know, askance and saying, like, what exactly are you up to? I read your, your, a bit of your bio. It was like, well, that is not typical. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> nope. not a typical thing to do. So there's got to be a good story here about how it came to be. In those early years, where were you seeing some traction and some movement of the Holy Spirit that you thought – you know, I, I still am finding reason to continue this. It's It's been really remarkable to see how much this was for me, that I thought I was doing Jesus a favor. Like, mm. all right, Lord, if you need somebody living out of a car, like, I will do that for you because I'm a big deal. And Jesus was like, that's cute. Thank you for, <laughs> for the gift that you give me as the creator of the universe who holds galaxies in the palms of his hands. I appreciate your generosity. Um, and he does, right? He honors, he honors that even when the gifts we give him are so paltry. But... Those first six months, I had no speaking events because you can't you can't just be like, hey, everybody, I'm a speaker. And sure, then everybody sure. invites you. Right. And I was staying with friends and not really I didn't really have much to offer, it seemed. And I have always struggled, as I said, with being too much and feeling like people are just doing me a favor having me around. And so I was like, OK, well, I just I have to earn the right to be here. You mm. know, like I'm visiting my friends. And so I got to make sure I'm doing the dishes and offering to babysit. And like, can I catechize their kids? You know, like, how can I earn their friendship? And everywhere I went where I was utterly useless, when I was leaving, my friends would say, don't go, just move in. Just live here. Our kids can share a bedroom. You can have the upstairs. Like everywhere I went. Hmm. And it was just so healing for the Lord to say, look, you've been working so hard to accomplish and to and to do all of these things and to earn the right to take up space in this world. And you don't have to do anything. You already are enough. Right. And so much again about that identity that I had that I had so much transformed into something that, like, I know the Lord loves me, but in order for the world to love me, I have to do these things and I have to check these boxes and I have to impress these people. And God was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to accomplish nothing at all. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see that you are still delighted in. 
And so just the healing that came from that and then just being a very type A person and wanting to have a plan and wanting to have control over things and the appalling lack of control Mm. (laughs) that the Lord Mm -hmm. gave me over my life to the point that it was not unusual for me to get up in the morning and not know what state I was spending that night in. And, you know, now it's not a big deal, right? I've got 35,000 followers on social media. So I just go on social media and say, hey, I'm going to be on I-40 between Memphis and Nashville, and I need a place to stay tonight. And 15 different people are like, oh, you can stay with me. And and it's fine. It's easy. It works out. But at the beginning, it wasn't that way. Right, you know, there's right. this feeling of like, I really might not have someplace to spend the night tonight. And I never had to get a hotel room. Hmm. Not when I was homeless in Istanbul and there were were riots in the streets and the police were wearing gas masks. Not when a blizzard suddenly hit me, which why do people not tell you you're driving into a blizzard when you're driving to their house? And you're like, you stop and call them and they're like, oh, yeah, we're supposed to get 14 inches of snow tonight. And you're like, you should have told me that and I would have gone somewhere else. I did not need to be in Chicago tonight. But just again and again. And it got to the point where like something would fall off my car and I would be like, all right, Lord, what do you got? Because Mm. every time that something went wrong, he was doing something powerful, right? Mm. There were just beautiful encounters that I was having. And sometimes it was him taking care of me. But so often it was people who stepped in to help me who needed what the Lord was going to say through our conversation. Mm. And just seeing the amount of healing that he was working in people's lives through my willingness to show up at a stranger's house at 10 o'clock at night because they said on Facebook that I could come just again and again and again, teaching me to trust and teaching me the way that he's working in in my broken plans, right? Because mm. I just want everything to go according to plan. And God was like, look, look how I save you through the missed buses. Mm. And look how I save you. Like all of these things are possible because of the way that your plans did not work out because I'm in charge, right? Mm-hmm. I got this and I mm-hmm. love you. And it might be really uncomfortable and it might be a long time before you get to the resolution where it all makes sense, but yeah. but nothing is wasted in God's economy, right? And that's, we were talking about suffering earlier. It's not that you are going to suffer more or less as a Christian, it's that your suffering is going to have meaning, mm. right? And right. you're you're not alone. You're held in your suffering and you're, you trust that God can use it to a purpose, And we often say in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And that really is a radical trust, but sometimes we cover over that with retirement plans or, you know, I mean, all this, you know, the future and and careful planning, and I'm I'm guilty of it too, of thinking like, well, sure, give me this day our daily bread, but I'm going to make my own bread, Mm -hmm. you know, for the next couple weeks, and then I'll, I'll keep trusting. But I mean, your witness is that... No, you can really radically trust God and, yeah. and he will And I should provide. be clear, I have a savings account. Yeah. Right? Not like, <laughs> right. I, there was never a point where, I mean, the time that I was homeless in Istanbul, that was pretty dicey. But generally speaking, if I was like, oh my gosh, I might not have a place to stay tonight, it was really just, I stubbornly have not gotten myself a hotel room and I will have to break that streak. But like I had, I had the money, right? And I have connections. It's not like I emptied my bank accounts and went to Togo and was just like, here I am. Or, or like a, a country where I don't speak the language, right? It's not as radical and impressive as it sounds. And you read the lives of the saints and I'm like, dang, I'm not doing it at all. But I, I think it's what the Lord has asked of me. And it's just been so evident the way that his grace has moved abundantly through my begrudging willingness yeah. to say, all right, fine, I will still not know where I'm going next week, and I guess you'll figure it out. Yeah, I mean, for 10 years on, that's, that's yeah. amazing. It's a lot of years. <laughs> when you started to get some traction and people were wanting to have you speak, what was the message that you felt like you had to share with 
I just only ever want to talk about how much God loves you. And people want to pigeonhole you, right? They wanted me to be a, an apologetic speaker or a chastity speaker. Now I, I do a lot of work on the saints. I've written a couple of books on the saints. I'm a fellow with the McGrath Institute on the saints. Mm-hmm. And people are like, okay, so you're going to talk about the saints? And I'm like, nah, today I'm not. That's not what I'm doing. Because I want to be obedient to what the Holy Spirit has to say. So most of the time... I don't know what I'm talking about when I go in. People will sometimes give you a topic or like, you know, broad brush strokes. But I just, I want the one, the Lord to be the one who's in charge. And so I'd spend time in my holy hour and maybe there's a scripture passage that I'm really drawn to or a story of a saint. And sometimes I will just be like, okay, we're going to tell some wild saint stories or uh, we're going to go over this Sunday's readings or whatever. But most of the time I'm just like, I have a vague idea of what we're doing and I want to let the Holy Spirit be in charge and I want people to know that they are seen and they are known and they are loved and that God is calling them not just to be adequate, but to be great saints. Mm. Um, mm. And that's a, it's a lot. It's a, it's a pretty it's intense yeah. message to be yeah. giving to like random seventh graders who didn't sign up for this. Sure. <laughs> uh, but it's, that's the universal call to holiness, right? And that's, that's what it is to be a Christian, to be a missionary, as we're all called to be missionaries, that we're speaking about the profound love of Jesus that accepts us exactly as we are and calls us to be entirely transformed into being more fully ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Still being silly or shy or nerdy or whoever you are, but being free in the certainty of God's love and running after him as your only true goal. Mm-hmm. And then that grew into becoming an author in certain ways. Where did you find inspiration for topics for some of the things you've written about? You know, I never really thought of myself as a writer. I mean, as a kid, I did, right? Because every every kid who's a reader wants to be a writer. But then writing was just something that I was like, oh, well, this is this comes easily for me. But it wasn't something that I particularly enjoyed until I found the things I really wanted to write about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I started writing about scripture, not the assigned passages in my scripture classes, but the things that were moving my heart. I discovered the saints. I would had never been interested in the saints because mm-hmm. every story I heard was just so vapid, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they were they were all sterile and they were all unattainable and they they weren't an invitation and they weren't about Jesus. And that's not universally true of the way we tell saint stories, but it's it's pretty broadly true in the English speaking worlds mm-hmm. that people hear the stories of the saints and they sort of finish with a sigh and say, "Well, that's not me." That and, sounds impossible. And or, then yeah, I encountered yeah. saints who whose brokenness was really evident or whose hobbies were really delightful to them or mm-hmm. who had passions that the Lord used to change the world and recognizing the way the lives of the saints can speak to people's hearts and say, look, you in your abusive childhood and you in your mental illness and you in your love of skiing, right? Like you are loved and you are seen and you are called. And the number of people who think that that they're ineligible for God's love for whatever reason. And then I can tell them, oh, well, here's a saint with that exact same situation. Mm -hmm. This is what it looks like for that to have a halo on it, right? The way that it just invites people into the heart of Jesus. And it's disarming because if I'm like, let me tell you about Jesus, people are like, okay, (laughs) we're not doing that right right now. But if I'm like, let me tell you about a violinist with a PhD who snuck behind enemy lines to work in a factory in Germany so that she could undermine the work of the Nazis by teaching Polish music to women who were working in the camps. People are like, no, hang on. What's, <laughs> what's that story now? Yeah. And then and then talking about Blessed Natalia Tulashevitz and saying like she couldn't be a femme fatale and she couldn't be a spy, but she could be she could be a music teacher and that could be for the salvation of souls. Hmm. Right. And so telling these stories is just for me always an invitation to people to know what it is that they're loved by Jesus. And that's that's really my goal 
in everything that I do. And I don't, don't know that I'm always successful. Sometimes I just get really excited about a story and I forget to, <laughs> to tie it into the meaning of life. But yeah, it was digging into this research and seeing how it changes people's lives when they see themselves in the saints. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those stories are so inspiring. And these stories, I hope, are inspiring to people as they listen to the guests on the podcast. I am inspired by your trust in God, by your rootedness, by your joy of the faith. But but we did visit a topic that I'd like to come back to, the cost of discipleship, that this hasn't been all easy for you throughout this itinerant missionary lifestyle. What have been some of the costs? What have been the crosses you've borne? Yeah. I mean, I don't have a home and that's profoundly inhuman. Mm-hmm. There is, you know, and I, I don't want to appropriate the struggle of homelessness because I, I do have roofs over my head, but I don't have a place that is mine. I don't have a place to turn off. I don't have places where I don't have to perform to any degree. You know, I have some people who I love where I can kind of turn off a little bit, but right. but not having a, a baseline, a soft place to land, which is, you know, I mean... Jesus had no place to right. lay his head. So there's definitely some resonance there. And it's made me more profoundly rooted in the Eucharist because as close as I get to a home is every tabernacle. Yeah. So that's that's certainly a struggle. I'm 38 and unmarried and childless so, and really good with children and a great cook, if I'm as interested. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's, that's definitely a struggle on figuring out how to walk in a world that isn't geared towards that and what it is to trust God when when there is no understanding of what the future holds long term. Yeah. I'm very good at the well, I don't know where I'm spending tomorrow night, you know, after years and years and years right, of practice right. at that. But yeah. but still sitting with the Lord and, you know, my friends are talking about their children's college plans and I'm like, I don't know that I ever get to be a part of this conversation. And God is good and he has brought so much fruit out of that struggle. And I get I talk with predominantly women, I think, that being single as you age is more common among Catholic women and also much more painful among Catholic women because Mm. of the biological component, right? If you're a 40-year-old man, you could conceivably still have five children and it would be totally ordinary. But the number of Catholic women I talk to who suffer really greatly because they aren't married, they don't have kids, it's likely they're not going to have kids, they don't fit in their community, there's no space for single Catholic women. A lot of their married friends don't feel comfortable including them in a lot of things, right? There's a lot of isolation that mm. these women feel that I don't because I just insert myself into people's lives and raise their children <laughs> with them, which is a great gift that I have so many people who welcome me into that. But but also these women I talk to who are like, I'm a, I'm a dental hygienist, right? Or I'm a corporate lawyer or, mm. you know, I, I have this job that takes care of me but doesn't provide any meaning to my life. And it's an entirely different experience when a woman is – single and childless and a teacher or in ministry or a social worker. You know, when she feels that this is a this is a great painter, but she can see how this space in her life has opened up a path for her to do beautiful things for the kingdom. For the people who haven't made that space, either in their work or in their ministry or in their community, uh, there is there is this real feeling of of meaninglessness and isolation. And so being able to speak to those women and being able to to bring hope into their hearts and to talk about the way that our suffering has meaning and the way that it can bring us deeper into the heart of Jesus and that bridal relationship with Jesus that is that can be so profound for men and women, for single and married, but that is 
not a consolation prize, but actually the whole purpose of everything that we do in this life. And so I think it's just been, it's been such a gift to see the way that God uses my unanswered prayers and my unfulfilled longings in terms of vocation, in terms of home, in terms of healing for people that I pray for or relationships that need healing. I mean, all my life is really an, an enormous patchwork of unanswered prayers. And it's been such a gift to see the way that God uses those to bear direct fruit um, in my life and in the lives of the people around me. And when you have that evidence, whether in your life or in the lives of the saints or in stories in scripture, when you see, look, I know that God is faithful in my suffering. I know that God is working in these unanswered prayers. I know that when God seems silent, it's not that he's distant because I've seen it happen in the past. It becomes possible then to remain rooted in that certainty, in that reality, in the present where you're like, I don't know how God can bring good out of this horrific experience. But I know that he is with me and I know that he is good and I know that he sent it in the past when I don't didn't believe it was possible. And so I will trust that God is still working even when I can't see it. Hmm. Well, thank you for that vulnerability and sharing that with us. I'm, I'm sure that's going to be helpful to a lot of people because, as I said, sometimes when your life doesn't seem on time or on track, that can be very disconcerting. And it's hard to trust or hard to see what God might be doing in that. The, you know, the freedom that you might not, that you have, that you might not otherwise have if your life had gone a different way or whatever the case may be. But it's hard to trust in those moments when you can't grab onto something like a home or an immediate family or something that, that, that maybe your peers are experiencing. So, Especially when you're a Notre Dame type. Yeah. Right? And right. when you, you did all of the right things and you checked all of the right boxes and your life just went the way <laughs> that it was supposed to go and like this is what comes next. And I think a lot of people who were gifted growing up or who had a lot of success in certain areas of their life, it can become even more jarring mm. when when their career doesn't go as they planned, when they struggle with infertility, when they get a really difficult diagnosis because they they don't, we don't have practice in dealing with these catastrophes, mm. right? And like, we've all experienced suffering to some degree, but there comes a point, I think in just about everybody's life where things derail. And when things derail, but you know the engineer who built the railway lines, it's very different. And when you can say, well, okay, it's happened in the past and God was working, but it, it can be a really hard thing when everything went to plan for so long. And now all of a sudden, here's this one thing, and it's too late. It's too late for it to go to plan, you mm. know? And so you're like, well, I, I can't recover from this. And God is like, yeah, okay. But I raised the dead. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to need Just you to watch. trust me. Yeah. The God who can take the ugliest thing in the history of the world and call it Good Friday is not intimidated by the brokenness of your life. Mm. It's beautiful. Well, I do want to touch on holiness. That's important. We've been talking around it this whole time. Who have been some of the models of holiness, inspiring saints or, or stories or people to you along the way that, that you could share with us? That's a dangerous question, man. <laughs> uh, this is what I do. I just sit and talk to people about the saints. Golly, so many of them. One who's really been a, a dear heart friend for several years now in this arena is St. Leopold Mandic, who was a little bitty Croatian capuchin. And he... All he wanted in life was to end the Great Schism. No big deal. Just reunite the East and the West after, at the time, 900 years of separation. It's fine. Well, you know, yeah. dream big. And so he became a Capuchin so that he could reconcile the Eastern and Western churches. And he was sent to Italy, where there are no Orthodox. Mm. And 
made to sit in the confessional. Hmm. And he sat in the confessional for 12 hours a day. And he kept going back to his superiors and saying, send me back. Send me, send me to the East. I know this is what God is calling me to do for decades. And finally, several months before he died, he wrote in his journal, now I'm certain that God is going to use me to end the Great Schism. And then he died. Hmm. He never experienced the answer to his prayers. He never experienced the the resolution of that longing, and he died a happy man because he died faithful. And I think I read about the saints who tried and tried and worked and worked and finally got what they want, and that's great for them, but it's actually really not helpful for me (laughs) because it inclines my heart to be fixed on the answer to prayers and not on the one who answers prayers. But Leopold Mondich, he just sits next to me, all four foot five of him, and leans his little head on my shoulder and says, it is not okay, and God is still good. Right? And to have a saint friend who, who wasn't like, okay, well, never mind, I guess I won't do that, who still really had this deep desire, yeah, but trusted that God was good even in decades of unfulfillment. Just incredibly, incredibly consoling to me. Um, Blessed Kalimba Kang Won Suk is another one. She was a, an 18th century South Korean woman. And she was a convert to Catholicism in the very early days of the church in Korea. The church in Korea is amazing. It's the only church to have evangelized itself. Some mm. teenage boys found a book by Matteo Ricci and were like, yep, let's go. And Columba Kang Won-suk was sort of at the, at the forefront of that movement. And she was this brilliant evangelist. And she converted her parents. And she converted her mother-in-law. And she converted her stepson. And she did not convert her husband, who eventually was so sick of her Jesus shenanigans that he left her for a concubine. And it doesn't sound like he was the world's greatest husband, but but you got to figure in that moment, she's like, Lord, you could have just fixed him, right? Like you could have made him amazing and you could have healed our marriage and you could have made us this amazing couple drawing hearts to you and you didn't, right? And now here I am with this, the difficulty of divorce, which is hard under any circumstances, even if it is the safest and healthiest solution in in a given situation, but is complicated by the expectations in Korean culture at the time. And then she realizes that at the time, it was illegal for the police to search the home of a noblewoman if she didn't live with her husband, which meant that her house was no man's land, Hmm. right? And all of the Christians who were being persecuted could come live at her house Ah. and they couldn't be arrested. And the priest that had just been smuggled into the country could come live at her house and soldiers couldn't come and investigate and see if he was hiding there. And she becomes the heart of the fledgling church in Korea. I mean, half of the martyr stories that you read from the 124 Korean blesseds, half of them say, and then she met Columba Kang Won-suk and was converted. I mean, this woman changed the entire face of the nation and its experience of Catholicism because God was working through that unanswered prayer. Hmm. Uh, and she ended up being martyred along with her stepson. Um, and they, they've both been beatified. Just a just an incredible woman in recognizing her particular skills and her strength and also recognizing that God is working in the unanswered prayers. Yeah, that it doesn't always seem like it's working out or it seems like tremendous difficulty and despair. And yet, in the long view, what God might still be able to do with that, I think is something we can all hang on to. Well, Meg, I'd like to turn to your life here for this last question. I know it's not always comfortable, but you, I think you do inspire a lot of people. And you talked about regular silent prayer. You talked about some of these other things and tips for discernment. 
How do you find yourself at this point in your life seeking after holiness? Oof. I mean, it kind of seems like the whole point of everything, right? Like otherwise, otherwise why bother? What are we doing? Yeah. Remember, I was talking to someone one time. I was in England. And when I'm in other countries, I don't accept money for the work that I do. Um, when I'm in the States, I don't charge money, but I will accept it if people give it to me. When I'm in other countries, I don't accept it because I don't have a work visa. Mm. And this guy was trying to give me money. And I was like, no, no, I can't take it. I don't have a work visa. And he was like... Oh, so you're one of the Catholics that follows the rules. And I just stopped. We're walking down the street. And I looked at him and I was like, buddy, I want to be a saint. And he like stared at me. And then I just kept walking. I was like, what What on earth am I doing with my life if I don't want to be a saint? Why, why would you live out of a car? I could have a house. I could have a job. I could take naps, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I think that my hope is that everything I'm doing is about being more conformed to Jesus, which sometimes means watching Netflix and sometimes means reading vapid princess books and sometimes means eating ice cream because the Lord also wants us to delight in the good things of this world. But my top priority is always spending time with him and asking him to form my heart to love people more radically. Um, And I think that's been a lot of what the Lord has been doing the last several years is stretching my heart to those on the margins, especially those on the margins in the church who don't feel that this is a place for them, speaking about racism in the church and speaking about homophobia in the church and speaking about xenophobia and bigotry against immigrants and, and these these ways that we see people being told that they don't belong and that Jesus is not for them. And stretching my heart also to include the people who who are racist and homophobic within the church and who use the name of Jesus to try to exclude people from the heart of Jesus and recognize how wildly the Lord loves them as well and how a lot of what they're doing may be rooted in pain and trauma and fear. But even when it's not, even when it's purely malicious, the heart of the Father still thrills at the very thought of them. And so asking the Lord to give me a heart that that reverences each person that I encounter, that honors their pain, that's willing to witness their dignity and to stand in the margins and speak the truth of their goodness, even to a community that congratulates themselves on being so very Christian by rejecting them. Mm. And so I think that that's what's been costly lately okay. because people get really angry when you talk about the goodness of people who don't fit into the boxes they want to f- put them in. And this summer especially, God has just been asking me to take a lot of risks on social media and deal with a whole, whole lot yeah, yeah. in response there, to that. Yeah. And I think that's been largely the call to holiness for me now is being willing to say uncomfortable things. Because for all I evangelize like a steamroller, I also am still that people-pleasing seven-year-old who doesn't want anyone to be upset, right? And knowing I'm going to say this and people are going to be really mad at me. People Mm. are going to call me a heretic or whatever it is they're going to say. And But there are people who need to hear that they are loved and that this church is their home. I can stand in the breach and I can take that. And to do that without congratulating myself Mm -hmm. and to do that without making myself the hero and everybody else the aggressor and to do that without putting myself into a persecution complex, right? And to recognize the ways in which I am falling short and the ways in which I'm saying things that aren't well expressed or I am speaking from pride and and claiming that it's an act of service, right? Just just the Lord purifying my heart with with all of that. 
yeah, I think that's that's a lot of the work that he's doing right now. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. And just thank you for coming on the podcast and giving us your witness for your story of just this radical trust in God's providence and trusting in God's will in your life, even when it's not so clear. I think a lot of people will be inspired by that. Not that everyone would follow no. exactly what you're doing, <laughs> but not. you know, can come to appreciate the principles of it and apply it as it relates to their own story. Yeah, because there is that invitation in every life, right? What does it look like for me to radically trust Jesus when I have a house and a mortgage and four kids and tuition bills, right? Mm -hmm. What does it look like for me to let God be the one who runs my life? I mean, if nothing else in terms of your daily schedule, right? Like, can you... Can you give God time every day? That is a radical choice when you are living the crazy life that our society demands of you. To say, I'm going to make half an hour to spend with the Lord every day, like that could be more costly than my living out of a car, right? That's a huge thing that can make a saint of you. And it doesn't have to involve moving to Sierra Leone. Well, that's great advice for all of us and something to take to prayer for all of us. Well, I want to thank you, Meg. For again, for your time today and sharing your story. It's been a real pleasure to get to know you through this hour or so conversation. And our, know that our prayers go with you. The whole Thank Faith you. Indy family, I think, will be praying for you Please do. as you I continue in, in your mission, in Christ's mission through you, of course. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith in Deep podcast. We always invite you to subscribe to our daily gospel reflection by visiting faith.nd.edu slash signup. And if you have enjoyed the podcast, we ask you to share it, to rate it where you can, to pass the this story and all the stories we've shared through the podcast along to those who might be inspired by it and who in turn might be seeking after holiness in their own way. Until next time, you'll be in our prayers. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.